Welcome to Site Selection Matters, where we take a close look at the art and science of site selection decision-making. I'm your host, Rick Weddle, president of the Site Selectors Guild. In each episode, we introduce you to leaders in the world of corporate site selection and economic development. We speak with members of the Site Selectors Guild and our economic development partners and corporate decision-makers to provide you with deep insight into the best and next practices in our profession. In this episode, we again have as our guest, Andy Shapiro. Andy is a principal in the location advisory firm Biggins, Lacey, Shapiro and Company and the immediate past chair of the Site Selectors Guild. He is here to talk with us about economic development incentives in the United States. More specifically, how such incentives are being or likely to be impacted by the COVID-19 health emergency. Join me as we welcome back Andy Shapiro to Site Selection Matters. Andy, we've been hearing that the climate around state and local incentives has really been evolving both before and even after now the pandemic that's underway. Tell us about that a bit and help us understand what's happened since COVID-19 has emerged. Thanks, Rick. You know, in in uh, in many ways, the um, the practice of economic development incentives has or uh, soon will be uh, unrecognizable by pre-COVID standards. But you're correct. There's been a change underway for quite some time now. And in particular, before COVID, uh, we were seeing a pullback in many of those states that have typically deployed incentives uh, strategically uh, as part of their economic development efforts. Um, I'll just give you a, a couple of examples from the recent experiences we've had at, uh, at BLS and Company. For example, New Jersey, you know, under Governor Murphy, you know, they basically allowed most of those Christie era programs, such as the Grow New Jersey incentive to assist sunset. And they've done so without any clear guidance on what would be the successor incentive. This has had a significant impact on the state, not the least of which has been the cratering of the office market, particularly along the New Jersey Hudson River waterfront, uh, which has historically thrived on the steady diet of New York City's out, you know, out-migrating companies. So there's a lot of uncertainty there on the New Jersey side. And without a successor program in place, a lot of deals had gone basically on lockdown. This is all again before COVID. Another pre-COVID example of how the incentives climate has changed to a nearby state in the Northeastern Connecticut. There are another new governor, Governor Lamont, ordered a a top-to-bottom reevaluation of all state incentive programs with recommendations that ultimately that uh, the state curtail some of the more discretionary inducements in favor of some of the more what we would call pay-to-play programs, such as payroll withholding-based incentives instead. And then finally, in Florida, there's been a very contentious climate for several years around incentives in Florida. A lot of that really came about during the Scott administration with a, a tug of war with the legislature. That is eased somewhat under Governor DeSantis. The governor and the legislature seem to be more on the same page now. They've agreed, for at least for the time being, to allow some of the state's major incentive programs, such as the QTI program and the closing fund, the governor's closing fund, they allowed in the sunset. So you know, again, these are three states that have actively used incentives strategically in a, in a competitive process to lure or retain businesses over the last decade or so that have gone through some significant changes. We can describe some of this to what we call the Amazon effect or, or maybe Foxconn. The attention given to both projects, treated somewhat unkindly in the press, has created challenges for state and local officials in the incentives environment right now in terms of, again, pre-COVID awarding projects, uh, incentives. Some of this has also been attributed just to the overall strength of the U.S. economy. Again, before the health crisis, with unemployment rates at record lows and almost, I think, what, 90 months of consistency 
executive growth. There was just a perception by some lawmakers that uh, incentives are really no longer a, a material factor, a job creation and incentive and investment. It's just, just not that important. You know, Andy, you mentioned unemployment. You think about it. We were, for many of the last few years, we were at not just historically low unemployment rates, but what when I went through school, what was considered to be full employment. And then now we're looking at an environment where the unemployment, we have no idea what it'll actually be, but we're hearing numbers that are certainly not anything we've seen in our lifetime. So certainly there's a lot of change underway. How do you see this COVID-19 pandemic further altering the incentives landscape in the U.S.? You've mentioned you know, New Jersey, New York, Florida, some of the big states. How's it changing the rest of the landscape? It's really unprecedented right now. I, I think you put it correctly. It's so hard to really perceive where this is all going to be going. There have been some people who, have, uh, some of my colleagues who have drawn parallels with 9-11 and the uh, sort of the, the fallout from, from, from that tragedy. 9-11 was an obvious shock to, to our system. But when you think about it, the, uh, the most serious economic damage is really confined to a relatively small area, uh, New York City and uh, in fact, even there, it was um, confined to lower Manhattan. What we're seeing now are really almost universal impacts. I mean, nobody really has any real clear line of sight to the future. You know, just a bunch of questions that we're asking ourselves and others are asking us and our clients and we are discussing you know, things like, you know, when will the economy justify resumed hiring? Right. Or let's downplay that explanation. When will we at least see a subsidence of, of rifts and furloughs and, and hiring freezes? Right. You know, in the manufacturing workplace, you know, will, will technology perhaps be implemented going forward? And to what extent will that cost us more jobs? Again, technology is a re- in reaction to a, you know, a virus that has taken such a hold on human, a toll on human capital. Can we expect technology to come in at an even faster place now and pace and replace jobs? What about supply chains? We've heard a lot about damaged supply chains. You know, how extensive is, is this effect? Can we expect these supply chains to be rebuilt onshore now? In the workplace, what about flexible hours, transitory rotations and work at home and remote work sites and accelerates and you know, all this is a result of economics. It's a result of psychological and social considerations as well. What will be the fallout here on, on occupancy and office occupancy in particular? Are we going to be needing more space or less space or different kinds of space? All of these factors, investments and space and so on and so forth, occupancy, headcounts, all factor into incentives and the value that incentives can bring to a, to a project and, and the value of our project can bring to a, a jurisdiction. And, on, you know, just talking about the public side for a moment, you know, Again, we're really just now trying to get a grasp on what the fiscal impact of all this is going to be. I'm seeing projections that this year alone, we might see state budget shortfalls somewhere in the line of around 10%. Some really dire projections are that we might see up to 25% reductions in state revenues by 2021. I mean, the damage is already coming in. I mean, Maryland is already projecting a $2.8 billion shortfall this year. This, this year alone, Arkansas is projecting somewhere on the order of about $350 million. And then uh, we're hearing real risk and real vulnerability in some of the oil patch states, in particular, Texas and Oklahoma, that are so heavily reliant on energy and energy pricing. So, you know, what does this all mean for incentives? This, again, this environment, which we really don't you know, fully get grasp what the magnitude is. What does this all mean for incentives? Well, you know, we're getting questions from our clients. These questions focus really on kind of two key areas, I guess you might say. Uh, the first is, you know, will will they be able to obtain or, or continue receiving the incentive benefits for which they've already been awarded? A lot of our clients had entered into agreements 
with states and municipalities, you know, over the last few years for incentives in return for, for major investments and, and, and growth and headcount in different places. If these states and governments are suffering this deeper revenue shortfall as we expect them to be, then, you know, how will they be able to fulfill any of their existing obligations? Grants uh, in particular, which are funded through tax revenues. The other thing is, is, will states or localities want to renegotiate these agreements? If so, what does that look like? You know, we're watching all this pretty closely. There may be some trading. The states cannot afford to cover their obligations right now. And if companies cannot commit to actually creating the jobs and investment they said they would, then then perhaps there's an opportunity for some trade-offs. And perhaps we'll see things such as agreements for cash grants, which are subject to appropriations. They might be extended longer over a longer period of time. But, you know, other incentive types and other agreements generally require, uh, have less flexibility. I mean, agreements for tax credits, for instance, they typically require legislative approval. Uh, they're not subject to appropriations and therefore not part of the budgetary process. So in those cases, governors and legislators might have less flexibility to adapt existing incentive agreements to the current economic realities. So, you know, we're watching this all very closely. There's also the issue of just, you know, given the current situation for a company that has a project in motion right now, and, and our firm has several going on right now, should they think about engaging at all with state and local governments on incentives for, for their new project? In which case, the question you have to ask is, do you really want to be the company that is seen as seeking a handout? And that may not be, that's a sort of awkward term, but seeking a handout out at a time when everyone else is focused on health and safety and family finances and small business recovery. You know, Andy, when I'm listening to you kind of walk through the range of questions in this current environment, I'm reminded of the run-up to the Gulf War with Donald Rumsfeld talking about the list of known unknowns. And boy, (laughs) does my list of known unknowns go up uh, as we look at all of this, because there's so much that we just don't know right now. But one thing that seems clear is there's a lot of change underway. Uh, Tell me, how do you believe the role of optics uh, how this looks, perceived perceptions, optics around incentives will be a factor or a consideration in these corporate location decisions going forward. What will optic? What role will optics play? I mean, we are for all those reasons you just described. Those optics are such a key consideration right now, and our firm is really, really focused on optics, optics and uh, appropriate communications. You know, it's going to be a major theme in our mind, at least in the near term. And let's just say over the next six to eight months, next year, uh, no, perhaps much longer. We just, we just don't know. But how the ask for incentives is perceived in the public, how you handle message management and communications around this, even when there is, there can be a compelling case made for, and obviously the only reason you'd apply for incentives is if you can make a compelling case for incentives. Despite that, there's still going to be the perceptions that incentives awarded to a business, even if they are creating jobs and investment, could be viewed as diverting needed resources from health issues, from states needing resources to satisfy the needs of small businesses, families in need, and so on and so forth. So how do you how do you manage that? And we we are very much concerned and very much focused on on the optics issues and also on communications. Um, there's a lesson to be learned in all this. There's a lesson of the way the public dialogue was managed or, or some might say mismanaged during Amazon, for example. And you can even look right now for an up-to-date example. Just look at the fallout that's hitting some of the major institutions like Harvard or the LA Lakers and other big names and big institutions that have accepted you know, federal PPE loans. You know, this is kind of amplifying this theme that a lot of these government programs right now can be seen as happening at the expense of 
small businesses, public health, families, and so on. So optics are key. Optics are key in, in almost any case. The downside and therefore the need to really focus on optics and communications is magnified even more if a, a company is seen as seeking incentives to move a project, jobs and investment from one state to another. But but even if it's all about just like net new jobs and investment, even though even if it's just a, a new project that is not relocating but rather coming onshore, for instance, companies will still need to consider the timing of any incentives requests that they make. And they'll need to make sure that they've really thought out well the talking points, they emphasize, you know, the win, you know, win nature of, of the inducement that they're requesting. Uh, really good discussion. But you know, as we look at all this uncertainty and all the change underway. I don't want to nail you down on anything specific because we, there's more unknown than known, but what types of incentives would you, from your perspective, your, your experience, think might find support going forward in this current climate with everything that we've said so far in this, in this uh, conversation? What types of incentives might work? Now. It is a good question, Rick. I think you could I think you can generalize, and it's all we can do right now is generalize, but that incentives that have a lessened fiscal impact and incentives that can be clearly seen and portrayed as a win win, both for the company seeking them and for the and for the, the public entities awarding them, you know, could find could well find more support uh, in this environment than and other forms of incentives. So you know, just to take a couple of examples, you know, requests for tax increment financing or payments in lieu of taxes, you know, tax abatement might be supportable more so than other forms of incentives because, you know, number one, they do have less of an immediate fiscal impact. And number two, they can often be spread over a longer period of time. And these programs also might be viewed as essential, especially if a project could help drive small business and local economic recovery. And if that project requires incentives to pencil out, if it makes it a viable, then then one could comfortably communicate that and one feel comfortable and good about uh, making that ask and, and uh, partnering with local officials and sort of accomplishing that, that kind of program and, and that kind of grant. The other incentives that might be more tenable at this time are, you know, inducements that go towards infrastructure improvements. And a lot of projects that we deal with, you know, require extensions of sewer lines or you know, road buildings or perhaps new rail, things of that nature. These kinds of incentives, those that go towards local infrastructure, can also be seen as having kind of a, both a public and a private benefit, not the least of which is to facilitate additional job generation. So, you know, again, that could be portrayed as a win-win as well. So looking back on it all and just it just really you think about what kind of incentives does a company need to make a project viable financially and operationally? How well do those incentives ask fit in with local public needs? And where there's alignment between what a project needs and what a public entity and a, and a jurisdiction can benefit from, you've really got a, clearly a more a winning situation there and a more supportable incentive process. Andy, what a great conversation. Alignment of the private project with public benefit and public interest, a really good way to kind of look at the whole concept of incentives. You've really given us a lot to think about, but that's all the time we have today. So let me say to our listeners, thanks to Andy Shapiro for being with us today and talking with us about incentives in the response and the time period following COVID-19 on this episode of Site Selection Matters. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Site Selection Matters, and a special thanks to Andy Shapiro for helping us get inside and better understand the impact of COVID-19 on business and site location incentives. 
What an informative discussion and one that leaves us with a lot to think about. Again, I'm Rick Weddle, president of the Site Selectors Guild. This podcast episode presents my views and the views of my guests, and they do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Site Selectors Guild or its membership. We hope you'll subscribe to Site Selection Matters podcasts on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you some great discussions in the year ahead. Until next time, good day.